0: The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm the host of the podcast, and also director of advancement and admissions here at the school. And today I have with me, joining me on the podcast by Zoom, actually, two OPC ministers, Brett Malin and Christian McShaffrey. Brothers, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for thank having you us, for having Zach. Time.
0: So, Brett Mayland serves as associate pastor at Covenant OPC in Orland Park, Illinois, where he oversees Covenant's prison ministry. He's contributed to a number of familiar podcasts and blogs and the like, and um, if you Google search his name, you'll, you'll surely see the Aquila Report come up and Reform Forum and other things. Christian McShaffrey is the pastor of Five Solas Church, which is an OPC congregation in Reedsburg, Wisconsin, and he blogs regularly on the church website, which is fivesolas.church. Together, these brothers host the annual Kept Pure in All Ages Conference on Bibliology or the Study of the Bible. This year's conference will be held at Five Solas Church there in Reedsburg on July 22nd and 23rd. The conference exists to issue an earnest but brotherly call to return to the classical Protestant view of the biblical text of Scripture, which led our father. Fathers in the faith to receive the Textus Receptus as the authentic word of God, especially in light of the radical changes that are coming to both the Greek New Testament text and our English translations. And that was a quote pulled from the conference website, which is keptpure.com. The theme for the conference this year is Received Text Apologetics. Pastors Malin and McShaffrey will be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Riddle, Pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. Now, the reason I'm having them on the podcast today is to spotlight their work in a field that is somewhat neglected in the Reformed world today. A couple of years ago, I interviewed Dr. Ben Shaw and Dr. Sidney Dyer about the majority text, textual tradition of the Bible in the original languages, and I suspect that today's interview will engage with similar ideas and arguments as we unpack the topic further. I've also interviewed Dr. Mark Ward of Faith Life and Logos, who takes a very different position on these issues. And I do want to note that some of our faculty here at Greenville Seminary favor a majority text or Byzantine text type. Uh, Position and others favor what's called the critical text position. So I want to make abundantly clear that today's podcast is not putting forward one position as a test of faith, but rather engaging with an important topic for us to consider and discuss as brothers. And since I'm not uh, a subject matter expert in these things, I have asked uh, Pastors Malin and McShaffrey to give me some questions that I can ask to tee them up for the discussion. So we're going to dive in with those questions now. First. What in the world is a Burgonian?
1: Well, Zach, we borrowed the word from a lecture by the late Theodore Letus, who referred to Edward Freer Hills as a 20th century Burgonian because he followed in the footsteps of Dean William Burgon. And we understand that these names might be new to some, so let me just give a little background and set the stage. None of your listeners would disagree that the Protestant Reformation was probably the most significant event in modern history. The light of the gospel was recovered. It was brought out from under a bushel of medievalism and popery and sacerdotalism. Countless souls were saved. Churches were reformed. Nations were baptized and discipled. Western civilization, as we know it, began because of the Protestant Reformation. And behind all of it was the power of the word of God and during that era as you think back in history we see some wonderful acts of providence the printing press was invented enabling mass production of texts constantinople fell bringing a treasure trove of manuscripts to the western church the renaissance left scholars with a love for the sources and it was during this era that the new testament text was then collated and printed in a stable form From there, it was translated into several languages, and it established a standard text that spanned for four continents and endured for nearly four centuries, that is, until the late 19th century. And maybe I'll let Brett jump in and give us the bad news of the late 19th century. So,
2: late 19th century, uh, there was uh, to be a revision of the Bible and uh it was simply just to be a revision certain words to be updated that sort of thing and uh the committee decided that in addition to updating the bible they would update the uh, new testament as well and so uh they got some men on there uh and and some of them orthodox some of them good some of them not so much and uh, dean burgon happens to be a contemporary of them and a critic of the revision committee, and uh, as you read his work, especially revision revised, you see that this man is uh, a master of uh, the New Testament and a master of the patristic literature and really, probably the, these men probably were not in his league. Uh, he was just a master of these disciplines so it, it's interesting to uh, to read him and see. Uh, you know, this guy's not a fundamentalist. Some people try to make him out to be a fundamentalist. Uh, he's not that, he's an Anglican, uh, but he's seeking to defend the integrity of God's word.
1: And since the debate between Bergon and the revision committee, we've had for over the last 100 years, two main Greek New Testaments, the received text, which was produced during the times of the Reformation, and then this reconstructed text, Um, by Westcott and Hort in the revision committee. And here we are a century later and the experts in text critical fields are still tinkering with this reconstructed text. And we think it's time to return to the text of our fathers that we confess has been kept pure in all ages. So that's kind of what a Burgonian is. It roots our movement in Reformation history, but also recent history because of the reconstruction.
0: So that's what this discussion is about. It's not really about English translations, except in a secondary sense. It's first and foremost about the textual basis which lies behind our English translations. Is that right? That's right. So you're not advocating for King James onlyism.
2: Not at all. Uh, if if you begin to talk about these issues, unfortunately, you do get pigeonholed, uh, and and it's it's almost like people have a knee jerk reaction, uh, almost. If someone talks about the textus receptus, or even if someone just reads the King James, they get uh, they they get pigeonholed because uh, the net seems to be so so broad and it's cast so broadly. So uh, no, we're not. What we're simply uh, advocating for is uh, yes, uh, we are advocating for uh, Reformation era Bibles and for the uh, textus receptus, uh, but, but also. Uh, engaging with the reformers the puritan and uh the text that they were dealing with uh, rather than uh, this new age in which we live so uh so so there you go
1: yeah and on the topic of king james onlyism and the canard the ad hominem attacks that are given it's understandable because you know anglican burgon and then presbyterian hills and lutheran Theodore Letus advocated for the traditional text of Scripture, but then there was a gap in which the independent fundamental Baptists seemed to have taken over this charge and this argument, and that's very unfortunate. It's one of the reasons we want to bring it back into more of an established church context so that we can continue the discussion.
2: Absolutely. I, I, I would say that uh... When when the issue is often presented to us, it's it's uh, category A and B. It's just there's either critical text or there's textus receptus. and uh, it's it's really sad we seem to have been given a, or sold a bad bill of goods because uh, there's actually a third option, and that it is it, it is the reformed and uh, confessional understanding. And it's just when when you look at Burgon and then. Uh, Hills, who followed in his track, and then Ledis, and now Riddle. Just stand back and look. You have these four men who've written and uh, and done wonderful things for the text, but one is an Anglican, and then the next is a Reformed Presbyterian, uh, and then the next is a Lutheran, and then the next is a confessional Baptist. There's no uh, KJVO fundamentalist Baptist here uh, in, in these four. And it, it's just interesting to see this. Uh, and for me, uh, I came to this issue and I, I realized like there really is a third option. People who know the original languages, who uh, have studied, who understand the history, who've read the 17th century and and are still are really competent in these issues. It's it's just fascinating to see and it's a it's an avenue that I did not know existed.
0: As as you're as you're seeking to do some retrieval work in bibliology and really going back to a, a pre what we call pre critical um, scholarship on these things, do you grant the legitimacy of modern scholarship, uh, namely the scholarship which would have led to the formation of the revision committee and the production of the Westcott and Hort, Nestle Island, critical text uh, tradition. Do you grant that that there's some legitimacy there in their scholarship or do you reject it whole cloth?
1: No, scholarship is essential as a spiritual gift to the institutional church. I mean, Christ set up his church in this world as the pillar and ground of the truth and scholars are a great blessing to the worshiping community. The question is, are scholars to be engaged with recognizing and receiving the infallible Word of God or reconstructing a hypothetical original that will never be found? That's a starting point that is entirely different, one from the other. And it's also based on presuppositions that I think are incompatible. One assumes corruption of the Word and the other presumes preservation of the word and i love modern scholarship i stay current on text critical issues i read the new textbooks as they come out but what's the purpose to reconstruct a lost original i cannot say that that's what god has called us to do
2: absolutely let me just piggyback on that and say uh, uh christian's been to seminary i've gone to seminary uh, and loved it a couple of times uh, Zach, you've gone to seminary, and I think we've got a pretty good, good diversity of seminaries represented among the three of us. And uh, who would who would dispute the fact that we have sat under brilliant people, brilliant men who were amazing? And we live in a day and age of incredible learning and uh, great scholarship, Greek and Hebrew scholars and everything like that. So we, we love this stuff. It's It's often that you want to that people want to paint people as these curmudgeons that are anti-scholarship and only know english or something like that and that's that's not what we're advocating for we're advocating for uh going back to these incredible scholars from previous centuries that uh, were amazing and also uh, advocating for something that we would say is more confessional so we are we are pro-scholarship both of the modern age and of the previous centuries, because it, it's interesting. You'll find so many people in our day, like of a KJV fundamentalists who are anti scholarship, and then you'll listen to some critical scholar people who will talk as if the people in the previous centuries were just making mistakes and they're just clueless and they're just and that. That's not the case. These the, these these men were brilliant back then. So um it, it, obviously you run into problems when 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 you assume that people are just clueless or wrong or stupid or something like that we're not advocating for anything like that
0: how many versions of the greek new testament are there out there that that are kind of a part of this i don't know conversation or scholarly milieu is it is it just two you have the the textus receptus and the Westcott and Hort, or are there, are there more than two options that, that someone in good conscience might adopt and, uh, and, and take as their textual basis or preference?
1: Well, mainly there are two if you're going to judge the legitimacy on whether they've been printed in English or translated. Uh, that would be the received text. Again, it was edited in the Reformation era, and it was based on the text used by the churches, the worshiping community, East and West in all ages. Then there's the revised text, the eclectic text, and that's based mainly on two manuscripts, which are purported to be very old, the Sinai and Vatican manuscripts, and also some papyri. But then we also have the majority text, um, and you mentioned that in the introduction, Byzantine priority, majority text. And that, from what I understand, was a a well-intended move back toward the traditional text of the Greek New Testament, a return to the majority of textual witnesses. And it's based on a huge number of Byzantine manuscripts. And it's quite similar to the received text, but not identical. And there are some differences between the two, but there hasn't really been an English translation based on the majority text. So it's a rather niche uh, position to hold, and it's never taken traction for some reason.
0: Are there really that many textual differences between these, I guess, these three major traditions or the two major traditions and the one uh, more niche tradition of the majority text?
2: The main differences that you'll see in your uh, English Bible is the loss or the retention of John 8, uh, the woman caught in adultery, and uh, the uh, ending of the book of Mark which is uh, the resurrection uh, portion. And then there are 16 other verses that are either taken out or some would say added. And then there are a number of other uh, portions of verses uh, from the New Testament that are uh, taken out, just words here or uh, phrases there. So uh, depending on what you what you mean by that, as far as drastic changes, the most drastic ones are uh, two large pericopes and sixteen verses. But all all told, uh, of as far as meaningful ones, there'd be about about six hundred fifty uh, differences between the received text and most critical text uh, of of the present day.
0: Do any of the missing or questionable verses? affect doctrine in any substantive or material way
1: well definitely Uh, the first doctrine being that of bibliology it may you know mainly the attribute that we call infallibility Uh, we've confessed for centuries that the Bible because of what it is as inspired by God is not capable of falling or erring or being mistaken so having inspired the Bible the question is did God then also preserve it is this something he promised to do? Do we have today? And can we hold in our hands what the apostles actually wrote? And I believe that God promised that. I believe Christ promised that, that not one jot or tittle would pass from the law. So the doctrine of bibliology is probably the most affected by the reconstructionist model, but there are several other doctrines that we could touch upon. Um, I'd mentioned Christology in John one eighteen is jesus the only begotten son or the only begotten god that's a textual variant and those are two different things in my view and also the great proof text of the incarnation of the son first timothy three sixteen, was god truly manifest in the flesh or was it just he or who was manifest in the flesh brett do you have others that you can think of uh yes well
2: bef- before i mention any others i would just mention uh there's a really helpful and eye-opening essay on john 118 in theodore leaders the ecclesiastical text
1: mm-hmm.
2: very interesting that that actually he, he argues that that's actually a valentinian gnostic reading that found its way into our our bibles whereas at, at first you think this is just a proof text for the the divinity of christ and i can show my jehovah's witness friends but it actually might be uh, a little bit different than that, and maybe a little more uh, problematic. So uh, I r- certainly commend that. We can talk resources later. But as far as others, um, there are some interesting things going on uh, lately uh, with with uh, changes that are going to be taking place with something called coherence-based genealogical method. But basically, um, the end of Second uh, Peter, Second Peter uh, three ten. Uh, There are some changes there, uh, whether uh, the earth is going to be burned up or whether it will be exposed or whether it will be not exposed. Uh, Very interesting uh, changes seem to be coming uh, on that. And uh, so we will see what uh, Bibles are going to do with that. Another one that's uh, somewhat interesting is uh, Jude 5, uh, whether Jesus takes the people out of Egypt, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, or or whether the Lord does it. Uh, Of of course, Christologically, uh, Jesus becomes Jesus at the Incarnation. Uh, We don't tend to talk about him as Jesus before the Incarnation. We tend to talk about him as the Son. Uh, so, So a number of interesting variants there, obviously not verses that are removed, but verses that are changed.
1: Well, Let me also follow up, if I could, on 2 Peter 3.10, very briefly. When we talk about the confessional view of Scripture, we're, of course, focusing on this phrase, kept pure in all ages, that God kept his word pure. But also in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we affirm that the locus of inspiration is the Hebrew and the Greek text, and this New reading in Second Peter three ten, not. It's not based on any Greek manuscript, and only scant versional support, and that should be alarming to those who are confessional.
2: Wait, actually, that that brings that brings up a, a very good point that we should understand is that simply, um, we ought to have English translations that are based on. The Greek and Hebrew, and if you do read a lot of the modern versions, you'll see that uh, in, in the introduction they will often say we have veered from the Greek and the Hebrew in these. Uh, there are certain chapters and certain verses or certain Bibles that uh, that that will show you this is this is in, in the body of the text. This is what the the Septuagint says. this Is what the Vulgate says. This is what uh, a number of other versions say
0: to shifting gears a little bit from the nitty-gritty that we've been getting into which is good stuff and I hope would encourage some of our listeners to take an active interest in your conference where you're going to be really doing a deep dive on some of these issues bigger picture question here and you've touched on it a little bit already but I want you to really address it head-on what is your goal in keeping this discussion alive
1: maximal certainty in the authority of God's Word As ministers, there is nothing more significant than when we stand before a congregation and say, listen to the word of God. Thus saith the Lord, hear the words of your Savior. It is our calling to help our people believe that the Bible they hold in their hands is the true authentic word of the living God. And if there are questions about the text, footnotes that raise um, objections or undermine the authority of it, it can be very destructive to the faith of weaker people, you know, the weaker saints. So we want to serve our people well, but we also want to call our brothers to reconsider where the past century has led them in terms of scholarship and the understanding of the historic Reformed confessions. We've lost something, and this is an age of retrieval and recovery. Everybody talks about that, and we want to retrieve a classic Protestant Bibliology.
2: Absolutely, and let me just piggyback on that. Our, our concern is obviously for our brethren, the, our, our, our fellow pastors, seminarians, and uh, theological geeks, uh, and the, these sorts of things, but especially, and far more so, it is for the people in the pew, it's for the young people. You know, we have concern for, say, uh, young people growing up in the church they might have gone to more of a youth group culture where uh, they're not given a lot of the heavy-hitting stuff. Then they go off to college, and they end up with a professor that uh, has 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 imbibed some of airmen, and he's going to point out or she's going to point out all sorts of changes in your Bible, and, and they're going to look and they're going to see this right in the text. And a lot of people, obviously lose their faith. Uh, of course, as Calvinists, we'd say we never had it, but uh, we still have a responsibility to teach these things. And it seems to me a very good answer to airmen, and I think uh, I think uh, the best answer would be the Reformed and confessional answer. Um, so uh, we would encourage people to go back to these sources and see that, in, a, in one sense, uh, uh, airmen has been answered uh, last century and the century before, and to 17th century.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I I don't find Bart Ehrman's uh, arguments all that compelling for what it's worth, and and I know I'm nobody on these issues, but there's a a lot um, of—just even his argumentation is not consistent, but certainly his use of the sources and appeals to evidence— don't hold much water once you actually examine them and put them under the microscope, so to speak. But this this podcast isn't about his issues, maybe that'd be a good topic for another podcast in particular to help the saints kind of think through from a confessional Presbyterian perspective, how to respond to the claims that come out of Duke divinity school and other bastions of liberalism and textual criticism. But we keep on saying confessional, confessional position. And I think it'd be very instructive now to engage a little bit with the Westminster confession of faith from which you draw the name of your conference that kept pure language. It's in, uh, Chapter 1, paragraph 8 in particular, but also 9 and 10, I think, would be relevant to our discussion. But I'll just read paragraph 8 and put that before our listeners, and then, I, and then I'm and going to have a question for the two of you. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which, at the time of the writing of it, was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by His singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God who have right unto and interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation unto which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner. And through patience and comfort of the scriptures, May have hope. And here's my question for you men Are you suggesting that some, or even all those who would disagree with your position, also disagree with the Westminster Confession of Faith on this point that uh, the scriptures, by God's singular care and providence, have been kept pure in all ages?
2: No, we're not exactly saying that they disagree with it. Uh, What we're advocating for is a a greater understanding of uh, how we ought to agree with it. But what I mean by that is simply this. Um, What did the original writers of that mean? Well, they weren't advocating for uh, KJV-only fundamentalism at the same time. They understood that there were some variants within uh, Stephanus and Beza and Erasmus. There were there were even textual variants in the King James and other Bibles. So what we're asking for is for people to look at these things and see that uh, there there is, I would say, a, a greater uh, certainty and a maximal uh, understanding of of what those words actually meant. I think we've gotten away from uh, where those, what what those words actually uh, intended originally.
1: Yeah, and we know what was intended originally because of work that's been done, you know, specifically by Richard Muller in his Post-Reformation Dogmatics. He explains what the Puritans believed when they said kept pure in all ages. They acknowledged that the autographs, the original writings of the apostles, had been permanently lost to the vicissitudes of age. But they also believed that the copies they held, the apographs, were the authentic Word of God. Now, modern Presbyterians can disagree with that, but they can't deny that was the prevailing view amongst the Reformed in the Reformation and post-Reformation era.
2: Absolutely, it, I, I think we would encourage uh, your listeners to understand that what was intended there was the autographs, not the autographs. And um, it, if you ask most Christians, you know, a Christian on the street, is, is God's Word inspired? And often I will, they will say, "Well, yeah, it's, it is inspired in the autograph, and our Bibles are inspired." insofar as they correspond to the autographs, which the autographs, is, those are not what we have. So is the Bible in my hands, is that inspired? And the reformers, the Puritans, the confession writers would have said yes. And so really, in, in terms of retrieval, we would encourage those uh, who, who hear this to see that the confession was talking about autographs. Uh, and that would be a more confessional understanding. Uh, I, I, I will say that I certainly held to the critical text at one time and confessed the uh, Westminster Confession. So I, you know, I would have taken great offense at someone say, oh, you're not, you're not confessional. Well, we're, we're advocating for uh, greater confessional uh, conformity rather than uh, you're either in or you're out it's it's more about degree than uh, fully in or fully out, or something like
1: that. Well, and just to make it positive. We believe that the position we're representing can help our brothers subscribe more wholeheartedly to the Westminster yes. Confession of Faith. Without their mental scruples or equivocations, they can, if they come to agree with us, just say, yes, God has kept his word pure in all ages, and we hold in our hands the authentic writings of God. And that's a wonderfully, liberating and emboldening place to be. It, it helps you to believe, it helps you to preach, helps you to minister, and of course it puts you in communion with our fathers in the faith.
0: Besides textual concerns, do do you men advocate for a single translation that the Church should be using exclusively?
2: We are not advocating for something exclusively, no. Uh, we, we would recognize how good the King James is, but we would not Uh, dispute the helpfulness of the New King James, the helpfulness of the uh, Geneva Bible, of others. We would even advocate for uh, certain readings in, uh, say, ESV, um, even the NIV. In in other words, it's not so much one version. Um, There there are ones that I think we would rank uh, certain ones higher than others, and I think we would all do that. Uh, We would just tend to rank those that are Uh, based on the uh, Textus Receptus higher, but there are, uh, even in the modern versions certain verses that add greater clarity, and we are uh, thankful then for modern scholarship in that.
1: The only thing I would add is modern translations based on the critical text are missing portions of the Word of God, and we shouldn't um, be embarrassed to admit that. We believe that at least... You know, an epistle's worth of material is missing from the New Testament. And that doesn't undermine the authority of the Word of God that is present in other translations, because we believe the Word of God is quick and powerful. It's able to save to the uttermost. So even a poorly translated verse on a refrigerator magnet or a bumper sticker is able to reach people and to change hearts. But we want the full Word of God translated into our common language, and only those translations that are based on the received text offer that.
2: Absolutely. In, in addition, uh, it, when the, the King James translators uh, wrote the, uh, the, the beginning material, the preface, uh, they actually say, we, we acknowledge that the meanest translation, you know, the roughest translation is the Word of God. Uh, yeah. just, just as a... Uh, the of you know, the king's speech translated to, into another language is the word of God. So uh, obviously we've we've benefited. I, I read these the, the critical Bibles uh, for for years and, and benefited for them. But I would just say we did not have the maximum that we could have had, or we had the inspired word in uh, in the footnotes, and I, we just see that that we are missing something there, whereas. Uh, when you look at the, the the proof texts that are in the fr- three forms of unity, the, th- the proof texts that are in the original Westminster Standards, you'll note that they held to uh, these disputed texts. They had they they believed in them. They had looked into it. They had listened to the arguments for and against, and they had said when the that all scripture is inspired by God, that would include even the disputed texts and then so so when you'll take the Belgic confession and it says, uh, this is just going to be a paraphrase, but it, it lists all the books that they understand to be inspired, and it says we, we receive all the things that are taught in these that, they, that included the dis- material, and so we we would encourage people to, to think about this and to consider this. And I, we understand some will disagree, and we, we certainly love people who disagree with us. But it ought it ought to cause us pause if if uh, if if we find ourselves in stark disagreement uh, with uh, with our our standards.
1: Well, we even have an entire Q&A in the Westminster Shorter Catechism based on the doxology of the Lord's Prayer, which, according to the critical text, is questionable at best and inauthentic at worst. And that has been memorialized in our confessional standards. Is it the Word of God or not? That's the big question.
0: And it's one that that we faced here at Greenville Seminary. You you men probably don't know this, but um, Doctor George W. Knight the third, who recently passed into glory, uh, just um just a few months ago, he, when he first came on board, uh, onto literally the board of trustees at Greenville Seminary and began teaching for us uh, in a kind of adjunct capacity. Um, you know, we're a strict subscriptionist institution for our faculty and board, and so he brought his difference with the standards. On that very point, uh, where he um, where he uh, noted that he did not believe that portion of scripture to be authentic, and and what our board ruled on that issue was that he had a scruple because he didn't differ from the doctrine, he didn't disagree with what was said, but he he differed on the textual basis, and and so that's something that that we have uh, that we have faced here. In my understanding, he's the only one. Who has taken that scruple? Though we do have a faculty member now, uh, Dr. Curdo, who takes a critical text position, but I don't know where he lands on that particular on that particular point. Um, you know, my own personal um, my own personal take on this, or or maybe not take, but just engagement with this question of of which translation to use and which textual basis do you prefer, um, Dr. Piper and I both, uh, along with um, Dr. Sean and Dr. Dyer generally prefer a majority text uh, textual basis and the Byzantine text type for the New Testament. But Dr. Piper and I use the New American Standard Bible 1995 translation at this point um, in in our church at Antioch Presbyterian Church. And the reason why I landed there was um, that was the translation that I found to be the one that I would least uh, I would be least likely to adjust or change or feel compelled to comment upon in the pulpit out of all the translations that were available in a modern idiom of English that I believe my congregation could really engage with. And you might have a different take on whether or not the King James is is useful uh, for the folks in the pews and in corporate worship. I think that it has a beauty and a grandeur and a, and a kind of almost sanctified uh, sense to it. But I also think that there are some translation moves that are made, particularly in the New Testament, that I'm not 100% on board with it, even apart from textual considerations. So I use the New American Standard, but when I do my own translation work uh, week to week when I'm preaching, I I'm going back to... Uh, well, I'm looking at the full critical apparatus, for starters, so I can see if there are any textual issues or questions that I should anticipate or possibly address. But usually, if I'm just depending upon one, it's going to be uh, a Byzantine uh, text or a majority text or or the Textus Receptus. It's usually what I look at on my phone, uh, even when I'm standing in chapel at the seminary and there's a New Testament passage that's being read. I'm looking at the Textus Receptus and kind of comparing it as we go. So we live in an eclectic age, I guess, uh, one way or the other. And that leads me to my next big question, which Textus Receptus? Because there are multiple uh, versions of the Greek New Testament that are put out under that banner as being the Textus Receptus published, you know, in one year or another. So which uh, which one should we be referring to from your men's position?
1: Yeah, this has become one of those gotcha questions in modern textual apologetics, which makes it kind of fun. But having heard it so many times, I don't think it's as clever or convincing as people intend because every scholar acknowledges that several editions of each text base exist. And they also acknowledge that there are variations between those printed editions. You know, for example, there's about 190 differences between Beza 1598 and Scrivener's 1881 edition, but only 20 or so are even translatable. And if you compare that with the 3,000 differences between the Sinai and Vatican manuscripts and the gospel alone, you're talking 3,000 versus maybe 20 translatable or 190 technical variants. And the other thing that I don't find persuasive about it is, you know, we could just turn the tables and say which critical text. There have been just as many editions of the N.A. as the T.R. And here's something that no one seems to know. There's not a single English translation that follows any one printed edition of the Greek New Testament exactly. Check the introduction to your Bible translation and they'll acknowledge it. Brett already mentioned this. They start with a base text and then they engage in textual criticism while translating. You know, so which critical text? Which T.R.? we use as most critical scholars use the latest printed edition of our preferred text base which is scrivener's so that's my answer brett i
2: yeah i, I use scrivener I, I read from scrivener seek to do my devotionals out of the scrivener text um uh, so so really what what it comes down to is are we talking about a feel theo- a, a theoretical text or one that we can hold in our hands you know so the the Scrivener, the 1894, I can hold that in my hands, and I can reach up in myself, and I can grab a, uh, a, an NA-26, 27, 28, and I, I can hold that in my hands. That's really what this is about, the, the, the ones that we can hold in our hands. You can, ha- you can grab the uh, uh, 1550 Stephanus. You, that's in print. You can hold that. And you can look online and see what the minor variations are between them. But when it comes down to it, what are you going to read today? What are you going to read tomorrow? To me, you've got to make a choice. And uh, and so some I would say we'll we'll argue that the the final form of the TR, uh, of the Reformation, is the King James. And so then, therefore... The Scrivener uh, from, the, say, the Trinitarian Bible Society is, is that, and I can understand why people would say that, but at the same time, uh, Scrivener has a critical edition of the uh, Greek New Testament, which tells you variance in the margin between different TRs. So, so anyways, uh, at the end of the day, uh, Scrivener's critical text, or just the uh, Scrivener itself.
1: Yeah, and let me add a retraction. I said 1881 because I have critics on the mind. 1894 is indeed the edition. And that's also why it comes back to that translation question that you brought up, you know, the King James Version. It does represent the underlying Greek text and the text critical decisions that were made by the King James translators. Now, obviously we don't have that Greek text before us anymore but scribner did the work of bringing it into print so that we can understand the King James version Greek text as an independent variety of the textus receptus
0: That's fascinating. That's right. As we as we and thank you men for opening this up I really appreciate how how much research and work you've done to get behind a lot of the hype or beyond the hype to really get down into the substance of these things. And I hope some of our listeners will be inspired to do similar reading, even if they come to different conclusions. And so my last question for you all is, how can people learn more about these issues? What are some resources that they could go digging for in order to engage with these questions of uh, textual criticism, but also these questions of you know what the church has had in its possession through all ages as the Lord has kept his word pure?
1: Well, part of what Brett mentioned earlier is our desire for people to go back and read and to see what Owen had to say and Turretin and Whitaker about textual issues. And in anticipation of this interview, I posted a select bibliography on our church blog. I'm going to leave it right at the top for the next few weeks. So fivesolos.church, the title of the blog post is Receive Text Reading List. And I organized it according to elementary, intermediate, and advanced. And anyone, for example, at your school will have immediate access to all of the volumes listed there. So I hate to say it in this age of illiteracy, but we have to read. <laughs> Go and read some good books.
2: Amen. Um, but just to name a few, I think we ought to highlight some, obviously. Uh, Richard Muller's uh, second uh, second volume in his post-Reformation Reformed Dogmatics uh, really lays out the, uh, the, the, his- the history of it. And then Garnett Howard Milne's Has the Bible Been Kept Pure? This, this book is a treasure trove of mm-hmm. quotation from the 17th century, and it really gives you a feel more... Where the people of that century were, and it's it's just it's just amazing. But in addition, um, in addition to that, I would point to uh, especially uh, Burgon Hills and Letus. Uh, Burgon's uh, revision revised you, you, the amazing uh, amount of scholarship that this man has. Will it will come through? It's a slow it's a slow read. And then um, the King James Version, Defended or Text in Time by Edward F. Hills, very helpful. And uh, I mean, here's a, a scholar with two Ivy League diplomas, Westminster graduate from the early years. Um, I've actually seen a picture of his, uh, of his Westminster diploma. You know, he has uh, Machen, Murray, Til. because a Westminster diploma has the uh, professor's signatures on it. I mean, he was there in the, the, in the beginning. And then Theodore Letus' um, The Ecclesiastical Text, very, very helpful book. Um, I, I, especially, I especially would recommend chapters 1, 5, and 8. Very, very, but the whole book is good. So there are a number of things out there that are very, very helpful. Um, in addition to that, I would say there are some uh, videos you can find on the Kept Pure channel. Uh, Liddis lectures; Lidus, uh lays this out, and then he gives us a, a, a speech or a lecture on Bergon and his life, and then a, a lecture on Hills and his life. And uh, I would also point the readers to uh, something that Christian and, I, and that Christian and I wrote together on hills himself somewhat of a biographical uh, sketch of him and how he was uh how he was understood how we, he was perceived uh, and so uh, i mean maybe christian might want to put that in the reading list or i'll, I'll leave that to him but anyway it, it was fun to do that and talk about a, a confessional and reformed presbyterian who was briefly opc and uh he 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 was, uh, he, he was just brilliant, and it was, he, he's been very helpful to me and to Christian and to a number of others. And, and uh, I'd really commend that, that work by him, but also uh, the fun biographical sketch that we uh, gave of him.
1: Yeah, and if people do visit the blog to see the bibliography uh most red posts are listed on top and one of those is the tribute to dr ef hills that we wrote together so it's right there on the top
0: well brothers thank you so much for joining me today for this uh this power hour through textual issues and um, and I'm excited that that you're engaging with these things and making them seeking to make them available to a broader audience than is currently privy to these questions and debates and arguments. Again, I want to uh, note to our listeners that I've been speaking with Brett Malin and Christian McShaffrey to. Ministers in Good Standing and the OPC, that is the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and together these brothers host the annual Kept Pure in All Ages conference on Bibliology. This year's conference will be held on... Uh, on July 22nd and 23rd at Five Solas Church. And and uh, information about the conference is available at keptpure.com. I do commend it to our listeners to at least investigate. And I'll put links in the show notes uh, to a couple of the resources that were mentioned during the podcast. Men, thank you again so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Zach. Yes, thank you, Zach. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and Confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.